about cost of health care, education, insurance, and so forth. Worry about such things, I think it's so pervasive, most of us are afraid to talk about it because it seems as though uh, everyone else somewhat feels that way as well. And I think this is a very pertinent passage that deals with that. And that's why I wanted to begin last week with verses 19 through 21, where Christ is describing what a true believer looks like. He's doing that through the entire Sermon on the Mount, what a true Christian, what a true lover of God uh, is. He begins with the Beatitudes and these characteristics that will spring from the heart that's changed. And then he talks about true obedience, not just external things that they had been taught in that day, like the Pharisees had taught, but it's a change of heart. It's our attitudes. It's our actions toward others. Then halfway through the sermon, he gives this statement that is so radical, so outrageous, because it turns reality upside down when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And the obvious question would be, well, where else can you store them? And then he says, do not store them up because they are temporary. Now, treasures is a broad term. It can be anything on which we place our affections and our hope, our, our interest, our ambitions, our, our, our values, things that we hold dear that are temporary, that will stay here, so to speak, when we leave this world. He's saying, don't make that the extent of your treasure. But, on a positive note, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And we looked at some other passages in the New Testament, especially in Timothy, where that is explained, that we can actually take material items and money and so forth and, in a sense, invest those, or definitely invest those, in things that have eternal implications. And by doing that, that's one of the ways we store up treasure in heaven. Then, here in this passage, beginning in verse 25, he talks about worry. Do not be anxious. And it's repeated several times. It comes from a term that means to strangle or to choke. That's where the word anxiety comes from. Because if you ever feel it, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get some air. It's, it's a word that reflects that. It's almost like an emotional strangulation. One person has said that worry is borrowing tomorrow's problems and bringing them into today. Well, how inclusive does he say? I mean, how, what's the extent that we are not to be anxious? Verse 25 tells us, do not be anxious about your life. That's all pervasive, your physical well-being, your mental, emotional, spiritual well-being, all the things that you need, basically everything that pertains to your life, he says, do not be anxious about that. But it's important to note the first word of verse 25 that introduces the thoughts about worry, and that is the word therefore. Therefore is a sign that points back to what came before. And what came before is the, the statement not to store up treasure on earth, but in heaven. The eye is a lamp of the body, and especially verse 24 that says, no one can serve two masters. It's an impossibility. It's not a question of advice, such as you should not serve both God and money. It is not a command. You cannot serve God and money. It's a matter of impossibility. It's impossible. You cannot serve two masters. Now, that would have meant, that would have been a much more graphic statement in their day than ours because master-servant, master-slave terminology was known by most of the population since in the Roman Empire, 
the vast majority of the population were slaves, primarily had been enslaved because of conquering other nations that the empire had done. So they would understand master-servant terminology better than we do. If we say, well, it's kind of like having two employers, uh, that's, that's not near strong enough to what they would have understood. You can have two different, some of you do have two different employers, but you cannot belong, be owned by two different masters. Then he gives us these reasons not to worry. The first reason, there are four of these I want to give to you. First reason in verse 25 is you're not to worry. Follower of Christ, believer in Christ, true believer, you are not to worry because, first of all, God is your master. And if he's your master, then he is responsible for you. How does God become your master? Last week we looked at the fact, how do we, become, how do we come into a relationship with God? And I, I quickly went through, and I won't do it all again today, that we have to understand the gospel, that our ancient foreparents that were created by God in his image, Adam and Eve, were given a prohibition not to eat of a certain tree. They had enjoyed spiritual life and life with God, but they did eat of it, and they died spiritually at that point. There are many implications of that. They died physically many, many years later. But even in those early chapters, the first three chapters of Genesis, God promised one who would come later, who would remedy this. He's later called the Redeemer, and that was Jesus, God the Son, who became a man 2,000 years ago, and he lived a perfect life. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. And then he allowed himself to be arrested and crucified, and when he hung on that Roman cross, he was punished for sin, but not his own sin, since he had none. He took my sin upon him. God put my sin upon him and punished him in my place. And he paid the full punishment for sin, which was death in every sense of the word, spiritual and physical. Three days later, he rose from the grave, he appeared not only to his disciples, he appeared over a period of 40 days. My wife corrected me, said I said 40 years last Sunday. Thank you, Barbara. Over 40 days, he appeared to hundreds of people, one time more than 500 people at one time. And the last command he gave to his disciples was to go and to make disciples of all nations. Now that's why we are here. That's how we come to know God. We put our trust in what Jesus did. We realize I cannot make myself right with God with anything I can do through religious deeds, through giving money, through church membership, through being nice to people, even strangers. It's a dependence on what Jesus Christ did to be the substitute for my sin, and I put my trust and my faith in that, and that's the only way I can be made right with God. Once that happens, God is your master. If that hasn't happened in your life, then God is not your master, and these promises don't apply to you. In other words, you have a lot to worry about. First of all, your soul and your relationship with God. And so trust Christ today. But if he is your master, then he's responsible for you. And so he has to take care of you as his servant. And that's what he's promised to, done, so to do. So that is the first reason not to worry. Second reason he gives us in verses 26 and through 30 is you're not to worry because God cares for you. He's not only your master, Christian. He cares for you. And he gives us these simple illustrations. First, the about food, and he mentions birds. Obviously, they would have been within sight of where he was preaching that day to this multitude of people on this hillside. Maybe they flew over while he was saying this. But regardless, he mentions birds. He says 
They are not intimately involved in the process of acquiring food. They neither sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns. I seriously doubt if any of you are out driving in the country and you look over and you tell your children, hey, look at that little barn over there by the road. That's a bird barn. They store up their food. They're always about doing that. No, we don't notice things like that because they're not there. The Lord has provided them with an abundance of food. And he's given them the instinct to find their resources for themselves and their offspring. But the point is what Jesus says, your heavenly Father feeds them. He's not suggesting that birds do nothing. Of course, they are very diligent. They are persistent in searching for food. But they don't worry about where their next meal is coming from. I've never heard the birds first thing in the morning out on the power lines going, well, worms are down this season kind of dry seeds nobody's been mowing their grass lately oh it's going to be a bad bad day no and then he says if god so carefully takes care of these relatively insignificant creatures the birds how much more will he take care of those who are created in his own image and who will become his children through faith your life is of far more value than that of a bird then he mentions the longevity of life in verse 27. Are you concerned about living longer? Well, we can hopefully take care of ourselves, exercise or good nutrition and so forth. That certainly can be beneficial, but that will not force God into extending your lifespan. I don't know who said it, but I wrote it down. You can worry yourself to death, but not to life. <laughs> then he mentions clothing in verses 28 and following. He uses flowers as a model, the lilies of the field, and their vast colors and the beauty that they display, though their lives are short, so to speak. They're, then they're, they're dried up and are fit for nothing but, but burning fires, fires and stoves. If God goes to such an extent, he's saying to clothe these short-lived plants, how much more will he care of you? So what's Jesus prohibiting? He's not prohibiting planning, He's not prohibiting forethought. Birds do make nests. Some birds do migrate before the winter. They do lay and incubate their eggs, so there is a process. So there's nothing here to stop us from making plans. What Jesus forbids is not forethought. It's anxious, worrisome thought. As J.C. Ryle put it, prudent provision for the future is right. But wearing and self-tormenting anxiety is wrong. Third reason not to worry. You're not to worry because of your faith. Worry about the day-to-day -day needs of life. Anxiety over that, he says, is a sign of unbelief. And it's natural for pagans, for unbelievers, to worry about such things. If you assume there is no God, or if there is, you cannot know this God, or how many gods there are, and you believe that it's all up to me, uh, that, that I am the, the master of my destiny, and if anything's going to happen, I've got to make it happen. I had a friend in college. Her dad was a neurosurgeon in Tallahassee, and she told me he had later become a Christian, but before he did, he would taunt the other medical nurses and those that he would see pray before they would do surgery. He said, why are you doing that? That's why I went to medical school. Later, he himself came to confess Christ as Lord. But Christ is saying, if you worry, that's, that's a sign of unbelief. 
because you realize you don't realize there's a heavenly father to take care of you. Well, here's a couple of problems with this passage. Sometimes it's misunderstood. First, we are not exempt from earning our own living. We're not in no ways just saying sit in the armchair, twiddle your thumbs and just say, well, the Lord will, if he wants me to have food and clothing, he'll provide it while I do nothing. No. Like the birds, like the flowers, we theologians call it, we cooperate with God, that he uses means to accomplish his ends. And one of the key means he uses is our work and our labor. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, learned this lesson on the first voyage to China in 1853. The ship he was on was in a violent storm off the Welsh coast. They did not know if the ship was going down, but he felt it would be dishonoring to God if he wore a life jacket. So he gave his life jacket away. The ship did not go down, and gratefully, thankfully, later he saw his mistake, and he said this, or he wrote this, the use of means ought not lessen our faith in God, and our faith in God ought not to hinder our using whatever means he has given us for the accomplishment of his own purposes. So do you pray for good grades? Study. You pray for success in your work? Work hard. Be diligent. When our family was in seminary, and Paul Cable already dated everybody, now y'all are in your hundreds from what I figured over there. And so it was long ago. I had a car, and I was, our Barbara and I, and one of our babies, I guess, at that time, we were house-sitting several miles from the campus in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was driving over early one morning to take a test. My car caught fire. So I pull over in the neighborhood, fire truck comes. I've never seen a car burn. It was quite a sight. I mean, it was a sight. And what the fire didn't ruin, the fire hose did when they stuck that hose inside one of the air conditioner vents inside just to spray all that water and chemicals in there. Well, make a long story short, we were staying with some people house-sitting that had an old Volvo, and over the next few weeks, they ended up giving us that car. I mean, it, it, they just gave it to us. It was like, we prayed we need a car, we didn't have the money to fix this car, didn't really have an income, not much of one, in, in seminary and so we got this car. It's a miracle story. I mean, it's like a Bill Gothard story. You know, one of those things where you pray and somebody gives you a car. Well, then a number of years later, I'm a campus minister at the University of Arkansas with the Presbyterian Church, and that car dies. So we need another car. And I get a Toyota Corolla, and I borrow the money from my parents and pay them back a no-interest loan. I borrowed $2,400 and paid them back $100 a month for 24 months. By the way, the Toyota Corolla. There was a Japanese car that I bought from a Muslim student from Turkey who moved there from Missouri. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Which car did God provide? The miracle car? Free after the other one burned? No car? Or the $100 a month car? Both of them. Both of them. One was no more spiritual than the other. You know, that's a God car, and this is a, I don't know what it is, Japanese car. God provided both. He uses means. Second, believers are not exempt from experiencing trouble. There's nothing here that, in fact, there's quite the opposite. He assumes there's going to be, be trouble. 
He assumes each day will bring trouble. So he forbids us not to worry, but to be free from worry and to be free from trouble are not the same things. So even though God clothes the grass of the field, it still dies and it's burned. Even though he feeds the sparrows, they still die. Bad things happen to them. His promise was not that those parts of creation would not fall, but that this would not happen without God's knowledge and consent. So our freedom from anxiety is never due to some kind of guarantee to be free from trouble. But he wants us to be free from the, the foolishness of worry because that's what it is. Dr. Helmut Thielicke was a pastor in Stuttgart, Germany in the years immediately after World War II. Terrible years in Germany. And in 1946, for two years, beginning in 46, he preached a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it was a terrible time as the Allied forces were bombing the country there. And he would mention in his sermons the scream of the air raid sirens and the sound of bombs. Now, every sermon has a context, but I can only imagine how would you preach about being free from anxiety in circumstances like that? Here's what he said. We know the sight and the sound of homes collapsing in flames. Our own eyes have seen the red blaze and our own ears have heard the sound of crashing falling and shrieking. He said, I think we must stop and listen when this man, speaking of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I think we must stop and listen when this man, whose life on earth was anything but bird-like and lily-like, when he points us to the carefreeness of the birds and lilies, were not the somber shadows of the cross already looming over this hour on the Sermon on the Mount? In other words, while Jesus is speaking these words about do not worry about such things, Dr. Thielicke was saying that he knew already on his mind what lay ahead of him on the cross. In other words, it's reasonable to trust our Heavenly Father's love even in times of terrible trouble because we've been privileged to see it revealed in Christ and his cross. Fourth reason not to worry is you are not to reason because God will meet your needs as you seek first his kingdom. To seek first means primary, most importantly. Rather than seeking and worrying about food and drink and clothing like unbelievers do, he's saying focus your attention on the things of God and on advancing his kingdom. The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus Christ rules. So there is a missionary Implication to this. There's an evangelistic implication to seeking first his righteousness and his kingdom. And he says, All these things shall be added to you. Well, we're at the end here of this. I want to say a word to our members. In our giving, in our giving to the ministry of this church, I hope that you can see it as one, just one aspect of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because your giving is an investment in reaching people for Christ and seeing disciples made all ages 
here in Macon, middle Georgia, and even around the world. And I think it is one way, if we give with the right motivation, one way, one small way, that we do lay up treasure in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you know us and love us, and you care for us. You care for us far more than you do small flowers and birds. And many of us carry burdens around as though you are non-existent. We pray that even this day we would know we've been brought here in your providence. And because of your love and mercy and your grace to us, you don't want us to be burdened down with those things. So give us diligence, give us forethought, help us to plan, help us to be wise and make wise decisions and use our resources and energies and gifts as good stewards. But Father, guard us, guard us from a burden and an anxiety and a worrisome attitude that becomes sinful. And we do pray for all here, Lord, that the gospel would be real in our hearts, that we would trust in Jesus and him alone and not in anything else to make us right with you. We pray in his name. Amen.